We're going to continue our um, overview, if you would, in the Gospel of John. And we're going to pick up where we left off from last time. And just to kind of give a bit of an introduction, um, there's some tension in the air. Um, this is kind of where we are in the text. There's tension that have filled the air. It's like an invisible storm that is brewing. Words will begin to clash like swords. Egos will clash like thunder. The crowd will begin to murmur. Crowd murmurs will grow louder and louder and you will hear the conversation intensify. Drawing curious onlookers. Everyone is drawing in closer and closer in wonder. And in the midst of it all stands someone who is calm, unwavering, a beacon of both wisdom and controversy. The words that escapes his lips echoes with authority and power and strength, challenging the very core of the onlookers and their belief. Whispers circulate, spreading like wildfire through the crowd. Who is this man? How can he claim such audacious things? The clash of ideologies, ideologies reaches its crescendo as the mysterious figure utters the enigmatic phrase, before Abraham was, I am. Time seems to stand still as those words hang in the air, leaving everyone to grapple with the profound implications. In the face of uncertainty, one thing remains undeniable. This encounter will leave an indelible mark on the hearts and minds of all who bear witness of it. We're going to listen in. That's if we're in the ravine and we're looking on, listening in, and hearing the story that comes from John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. And we're going to see dialogue. We're going to see individuals those who are in the text, the Lord himself facing the Jews and the leaders, and they're going to have a dialogue. They're going to have discussion. But Jesus, even in the midst of all of this, he's going to teach with authority. He's going to express his divine power. And so let us turn to John chapter 8. Beginning at verse 48, we're going to read through to verse 59. 
And we just want to encourage you to again engage with the text and let us glean from the word of God. Here now in John chapter 8, beginning at verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I'm going to consider for our thought today embracing Jesus as the great I am, a call to surrender. I have three points, and they're going to be on the screen Point number one, Jesus' divine authority and obedience. Point number two, Jesus' promise of eternal life. And point number three, Jesus' prophetic claim. So let's begin. Point number one, Jesus' divine authority and obedience. Sometimes... Being a servant of the Lord can cause us to be subject to criticism. Get ready because it can, in many cases, be vicious. It could be severe. And as as you will see, this was especially true for the Lord Jesus Christ during his ministry, he oftentimes would constantly subject to complaining 
and criticism of various kinds. In verse 47, the Lord delivers a profound statement that carries significant implications. He boldly declares that those who reject his word do not have a genuine connection with God. He boldly declares that those who reject his word cannot have relationship with God. He says through his words, the Lord Jesus emphasizes the seriousness and far-reaching consequences of disregarding or refusing to embrace his teachings. It is a solemn reminder that our response to his word determines our relationship with God and the path we choose to walk. Look again at verse, verses 48 through 51. The text says, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, Truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. One of the insults thrown at Jesus was the accusation of being a Samaritan. The Jews held a deep-seated animosity towards the Samaritans due to their mixed heritage and differing religious practices. By labeling Jesus as a Samaritan, they sought to diminish his credibility. They wanted people to question his Jewish identity. Another accusation leveled against Jesus was that he was demon-possessed. And other examples of this are found in John chapter 7, verse 20, and John 10, verse 20. In John chapter 7, after Jesus read their hearts, he questioned their motives and how they were going to kill him. They wanted to, to kill him. And the text states that in John 7, 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Then again in John 10, verse 20, we're going to see later, it states that many of them said he has a demon as in, and is insane. Why listen to him? They accused him of being under the influence of evil spirits, attributing his words and actions to demonic forces rather than the power of God. This accusation was an attempt to undermine Jesus' authority and dismiss his teachings as being false. 
In other words, they would throw little phrases out there so that the people would, could be concerned about whether or not he's speaking the truth. You have the naysayers. And you have those who feel troubled that he's coming in on their turf, if you would. He's winning the people over with this power and authority that he speaks with. So they're trying to influence the people. These insults and accusations were intended to demean and discredit Jesus, painting him as an outsider and a purveyor of falsehood. In other words, you can't believe anything that he says. He's demon-possessed. Who would listen to a demon-possessed man? The religious leaders and Jews, and the Jews were threatened by Jesus' teaching and his growing influence among the people. And remember, he was the same one who fed 5,000. They hadn't forgotten that. They hadn't forgot about the man who laid down and who could not move. People had to carry him there. His fame is growing and he's speaking with authority. So they have to throw out innuendos. They have to throw out things that are not true because he's gaining influence. So instead of them having a logical conversation with the master teacher, instead of them engaging with him in an intellect, on an intellectual level, according to the word of God, they had to throw out things that didn't even matter and things that was not true, things that had nothing to do with what they were talking about. They had to personally attack him. And guess what? We're going to go through the same thing as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. People will throw out things at us because they are disturbed because of the influence we may gain with the gospel message. People will begin to understand and will begin to believe. But don't worry, keep speaking the truth. And so they thought that these personal attacks and unfounded accusation would help them to undermine his message. They were trying to turn the crowd against him. However, Jesus remained steadfast. In the face of these insults, he did not allow their words to deter him from fulfilling his mission or compromise his commitment to the truth. Jesus responded with grace, focusing on his obedience to the Father and the authority of his teaching. He didn't worry about whether or not the people uh, would 
get the information that he was saying. He didn't didn't have to come up with phrases and different things to help the people understand. He spoke the word and the word was efficacious. The word would reach the minds and the hearts of the people and they would understand and they could say like others said, didn't our hearts burn with him as he spoke to us the word of God? People were whispering, is it true? And so this exchange reminds us of the need to speak the word of God with with the authority that God gives us to speak the word of God with truth. So this exchange serves as a a sad reminder of the opposition Jesus faced not only here, but throughout his ministry. All the time the Lord was putting forth the word of God and and revealing himself as the son of God, showing the world that he had come to save sinners. He had the Jews who spent their time trying to make him fail, trying to diminish him in whatever way they could. But even though our Lord was faced with all of that throughout his ministry, he was resilient. Even in the midst of adversity, he had his mind on obeying the Father. So, when we explore Jesus' response, we encounter his divine authority and obedience to the Father. Jesus consistently affirmed his divine authority throughout his ministry and his response to the challenges and insults directed at him reflected his authority. In in the face of opposition, Jesus remained steadfast and resolute. He did not waver in his commitment to fulfilling the will of the Father, his obedience to the Father's plan, and his unwavering trust in the Father's guidance exemplified his divine authority. Jesus' authority stemmed from his intimate relationship with the Father, and he relied on that authority to teach, to heal, and to demonstrate God's love to the world. And in verse 50, the Lord states, Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seek it, and he is the judge. In this verse, Jesus asserts that he is not driven by personal ambition or the pursuit of self-glory or self-fame. Instead, his focus is on honoring the Father who is the ultimate judge. You know what? We can learn a lot from that. It's a reminder to us that we're not to walk around being men-pleasers. 
Not to walk around needing the affirmation of others to complete us. We are made in the image of God. We have everything that we need. We don't have to say anything to anybody to win them over. We are children of the Most High God. And so we ought to live in that. And so we don't need to chase after the appeasement of others, seeking their glory. Because here's the other thing with that is that people don't know how to judge us properly. People can leave things out. And people can begin to compare us, not with the body of work that we've had, but compare us to other people. God has made us unique and different. And so it's a reminder to us to to watch out. I remember Paul saying the same kinds of things. So, it's a reminder to us to recognize that we're to give glory to God. And then we, like Christ, ought to submit ourselves to the Father's will. And in these verses, Jesus asserts his humility and dependence upon the Father's Judgment rather than seeking personal glory. He affirms the eternal significance of keeping his word and promise of eternal life for those who believe and obey. The Lord Jesus is on mission. And he has given the church mission. We have the obligation and responsibility that when we come behind the sacred desk, we're to promote the word of God for the glory of God, for God's people. We're to do that consistently. We're not to be like the world, not to give you a powwow message to make you feel good. You are not to want that. You're to want the meaty word of God. Say to me only what God says. Nothing else. Let all the other bones fall to the ground. And so we're to come in here ready to have our minds stimulated by the word of God, wanting to hear what he has to say. And so... The Lord himself, he he affirms the eternal significance of keeping the word. Meanwhile, his opponents continue to misunderstand and react with hostility, which shows their spiritual blindness and inability to comprehend Jesus' divine teaching. Recognizing Jesus' authority in our lives is of utmost importance. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah, and the Savior of the world. His teachings carry divine authority because they originate from the heart of God. By acknowledging his authority, we open ourselves to receiving his teachings, his guidance, and his correction. Obedience to Jesus' teaching holds immense significance in our lives. We want to approach it in that way. Jesus' teachings are not merely suggestions. 
It's not merely advice. They are the very words of life. He taught about love. He taught about forgiveness. He taught about humility and living a life that pleases God. Obeying his teachings aligns us with God's will and brings about transformation in our hearts and lives. By recognizing Jesus' authority and obeying his teachings, we demonstrate our faith. We demonstrate our trust in him. It is an act of surrendering to the Lord, acknowledging that he is Lord over our lives. Obedience to Jesus' teachings is not a burdensome task. So when we're thinking about coming here to worship, it is not for, it is not up for uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it is not for us to, to try to be negotiating whether or not we should come to worship, but we ought to come because we know that it honors and glorifies God. So we want to recognize the Lord's authority in our lives And we want to continue in demonstrating our faith and trust in him. That's why we come on a regular basis because every day we're putting off the old man and we're putting on Christ. Every day we're surrendering our lives to Christ. That's the discipline we have come into. And so... Recognizing Jesus' authority and obeying his teachings, we do those very things. And so it's through obedience that we experience the abundant life that he offers and bears witness to his power, his ability to change us. As Jesus continues to dialogue with the unbelieving Jews about this divine authority, and it was his obedience with the Father, he adds another element. He adds another element to the conversation. He adds death. The next couple of verses, the Lord declares to the Jews that his words matter more than Abraham. And that takes us to point number two, the promise of eternal life. In this section of John 8, we witness a dialogue between Jesus and the Jews concerning the concept of debt and their understanding of Abraham. Through this exchange, Jesus asserts a profound promise of eternal life for those who keep his word, emphasizing the transformative power of faith in him. So the dialogue begins with this response of the Jews to Jesus' statement in verse 51. They react with disbelief, accusing him of having a demon. They cannot grasp, they struggle to hold on to the depth of Jesus' words, particularly his claim that those who keep his word would never taste death. 
And so their confusion arises from a literal interpretation, a misstatement, a misunderstanding, failing to recognize the spiritual truth, the spiritual significance that intends to convey the power of God. Jesus then responds to their skepticism by shining light on the superiority of his existence compared to Abraham and the prophets. He says, truly, truly. And when you see the words truly, truly, in our vernacular, it might sound like, listen up. It's as if someone bangs the table. Listen up, can I get everybody's attention? In, in their language, you see this idea of bringing attention to what the speaker is about to say. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus affirms that eternal life is available. It is available to those who hold steadfastly to his teachings, to his words, placing their faith in him. This promise extends beyond physical death and includes spiritual death, ensuring that believers will never be separated from God's presence and the fullness of life that he offers. Never. That's the very words that the Lord says. If anyone keeps my word, he will never, never see death. And so here we see this this promise is of great value. Listen to these verses that emphasizes the truth in verse 51, which are the foundational importance of belief in Jesus, obeying his word, which will result in eternal life and an intimate relationship with God. They point to the inseparable connection between faith and works, affirming that true discipleship involves not only intellectual sin, but also a life characterized by trust in Jesus and obedience to his teaching. Listen to the words of Christ. John 8, verse 24. I told you that you would die in your, in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Again, five, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John eight thirty one. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide In my word, you are truly my disciples. And then in John 14, 23, 
Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. It's a great deal. It's a beautiful deal. And to further solidify his point, Jesus brings up the example of Abraham. He declared, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus suggests that even Abraham, a revered figure in Jewish history, looked forward to the coming Messiah. His rejoicing at the anticipation of seeing Jesus' day implies an awareness of the promises and blessings associated with the Messiah's arrival that was connected to the covenant that God made with his people. And so here it is, by linking himself to Abraham's anticipation, Jesus affirms his divine identity. He he exposes, he reveals to them the eternal nature of God. He presents himself as the fulfillment of the hopes and expectations of not only Abraham, but also all the faithful throughout history. Throughout faith, I mean, through faith in Jesus, believers can partake in the same joy and gladness that Abraham experienced, looking forward to eternal life that only Jesus provides. These verses weave together a profound message of hope and assurance. Jesus asserts his authority over death offering eternal life to those who would believe in him and keep his word. The promise is of never tasting death, extending beyond physical existence, encompassing the eternal destiny of the soul. It is through faith in Jesus that we receive this promise and experience the transforming power of his love and grace. This dialogue underscores the importance of recognizing Jesus' divine authority and placing our trust in him. It challenges us to embrace his teachings and commit ourselves to a life of faithful obedience. By doing so, we enter into the blessed assurance of eternal life, a life that transcends death and is characterized by an unending fellowship with God. May we hold fast to Jesus' words, believing in him and experiencing change and power in us through faith in our journey towards everlasting life. In other words, we must remind ourselves 
the word of God so that we might wake up with anticipation, that we might wake up with uh, expectation, that we might remember the promises of God. And that's what we have in a life with Christ. And to cap off their discourse, Jesus continues to show the Jews that he is in a league of his own by himself, above all, even Abraham. Our final point in today's message is Jesus' prophetic claim before Abraham was, I am. The confrontation between Jesus and the Jews regarding his identity is a significant event in the Gospel of John. Throughout the passage, Jesus engaged in a deep dialogue revealing profound truths about himself and challenging the understanding of his opponents. At the heart of his confrontation is Jesus' declaration of I am. In verse 58, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This statement carries immense weight and reveals his eternal preexistence by using the phrase, I am. Jesus aligns himself with a divine name revealed to Moses at the burning bush when Moses was going to return to the Pharaoh. It signifies his divine nature, an existence beyond human limitation of time and space. And so the implications of Jesus' I am statement are staggering to the Jews. They know what he's saying when he mentions the words, I am. That was set aside only for God. And so when Jesus says that, he gets their attention. By using the phrase, I am, Jesus aligns himself with the divine name of God. And it signifies his divine nature. It signifies his existence that goes beyond that time and space in history when he was with the Jews. He's essentially saying, I've been here. Beyond human limitations of time and space, I've always existed. And so he's pointing to this idea. The implication uh, of Jesus' I am statement is staggering because it asserts his divine authority showing his equality with God the eternal existence. Other examples where God, where the Lord is showing his divine nature 
All we have to do is go again to the I am statement. And they include the same similar language. We see this on seven occasions. Jesus makes a self-declaration in which he expresses that I'm God. And he says it like this in John 6.35 and in verse 48 as well, 41 51, he says, I am the bread of life. I am your spiritual sustenance. I am everything that you need. I am the bread for you that have come down from heaven, which again signifies his eternal existence. If that's not enough, in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Then in John 10 and 79, he says, I am the door for the sheep. And and that's interesting because um, Jews know that when there's a sheepfold, there is no gate. But what, what, what the shepherd would do, the shepherd knows the fold. The shepherd would check each and every sheep to make sure that they're in the fold. Those that are not, they would be put out. He knows each and every sheep, and he would get the shepherd, he would get the sheep, and as the shepherd, he would have them all in one place, and then the shepherd would lie down in front of the sheep, ready to give his life on the behalf of the sheep. It was another way of saying, these are mine. And Jesus is saying that. As the I am, he's saying that I am the door. And all those who are mine, I know them. And they know me. Then John 10, 11 says, not only is he a shepherd, he's a good shepherd. He's a good shepherd. And then we've read it already, but he says that I am the resurrection and the life. In John 11, we read that. And he also says in John 14, 6, I am the familiar one, the way, the truth, and the life. And we know in John 15, we are the branches. And the text says that he is the vine. In that very text, he says, I am the true vine. Again, these I am statements are not just declarations. But but they're saying, I'm God. And so it's not just a mere statement. But God is saying, I am God. He's letting them know his unique divine identity that's distinct from any other human being. So this declaration challenges the Jews understanding of him as merely a human being, as merely being a prophet, as merely being a good teacher. And when you hear something like that, it demands a response. And so that's why things are different between us and Muslims. We go beyond this idea of a teacher We go beyond this idea of a good man. We know from the biblical text that he himself says, I am God. 
And we say we agree. We, are, we believe that reality. And so we can't just walk away from that. It demands a response. For our faith and understanding of Jesus' divinity, his I am statement is crucial. It calls us to recognize and accept Jesus as more than a great moral teacher or religious figure. So that's why Muslims and Christians believe in a different Jesus. But not believing in the same Jesus. They may believe he's a good prophet or good teacher. We believe that he is the eternal son of God, the creator, the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh to reveal God's love and bring salvation to all humanity. That's the Jesus we believe in. The implications of Jesus' claim for our faith are profound. It compels us to continue surrendering our lives to him. Acknowledging his authority and his divinity. That's why we submit. We submit because he's God and we recognize that. That's what we're saying when we participate in the means of grace. We're saying we agree with the Lord. The Lord has given us instructions. He has given us his word. We respond in obedience. We respond from a, a disposition that we love God. And that we want to acknowledge him as having authority in our lives, as being divine. The I am is inviting us to trust him. The I am is, is, is requiring us or inviting us to rely on his teachings and to follow his example. We are called to place our faith in him for salvation. And so if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you ought to know him today as the I am for your life. There's nothing that you can do to save yourself. Trust the great I am who have come to give his life as a ransom for many. He's come to pay for our sins from conception to the grave to cover us because we cannot make payment for ourselves. And if you receive him, the scripture says, those whom the sun sets free shall be free indeed. And that's why we call it good news because we were dead in trespasses and in sin. We came to a knowledge of Christ. We believe for ourselves and we receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. We believe that he died, was buried, and rose again from the grave. And the scripture says if you believe that, if you confess with your mouth that the Lord, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart and receive him, you would be saved on the basis of your confession and your faith in him. That's what he has come to do. That's what the text is all about. That's the invitation. The question is whether or not we believe. So we're called to place our faith in him 
for salvation and to build our lives on the foundation of his eternal truth. Furthermore, lastly, Jesus claimed challenges. His claim challenges us to evaluate our understanding of who he is and how we respond to him. We ought to think for a moment, are we valuing God as we ought to? Do we, do we give him the value that he deserves? Or do we treat him like the world does, stepping on his name as if it has no value? It challenges us. Are we bothered when the Lord's name is used in vain? That, that bothers me. Every time I hear it, I even hear children degrading the name of God. Right? That's what we want to grow into. We want to grow into the realities that is found in Scripture. We want that to be our reality. And so therefore, this ought to prompt us to deepen our knowledge of his divinity through studying the scriptures and continuing to engage in our personal relationship with God. It invites us to an encounter with God. This is what we can have on a regular basis, an encounter with God, the living Christ, and we can experience our lives being transformed right before our eyes. Why? Because God is present. He's present in our lives. And so may we continue to seek that out. Let us continue to pray and ask God to deepen our understanding and our relationship with him. May we grow in our relationship with God. May we be a congregation that trusts in him, follows him faithfully, and shares his love and truth with the world around us. But it must begin with us. We must already be doing it amongst ourselves. We must begin in the little churches. And then we can expand. We ought to begin at home, and then we can expand. Begin here, and then we can expand. Let's pray.